From 12 News, this is Newsmakers. Violence in Providence has shot to the top of the agenda and is shaping up to be a major topic in next year's open race for mayor. One of the candidates, Brett Smiley, has weighed in, calling for additional resources and a new approach to responding to 911 calls. Welcome to Newsmakers. I'm Tim White alongside 12 News Politics Editor Ted Nisi. Our guest this week is uh, candidate for mayor of Providence, Brett Smiley. Brett, good to see you. Welcome nice back to, to the program. You Thank you. Let's uh, start with that topic. You held a news conference this week about city violence. Look, you hear different perceptions of crime and violence in the city right now. What's yours? How much of an issue is violent crime in the city? Well, you know, I think you used a key word, which is perception. Uh, safety is very much of a feeling, and convincing people that they're safe with statistics just never works. And so there is a sense that Providence is not safe right now. We keep seeing significant, violent, jarring, heinous crimes committed that residents are scared. People who come to Providence to go to dinner, to shop, are concerned about coming to the capital city. And we need a, an all-hands-on-deck moment to take help that's being offered and to articulate clearly a plan for public safety so that people can feel confident, not just for city residents, but for people coming here to shop, eat, dine, spend money in our capital city. Before we get into the, the plan and your ideas to that, I mean, it, I am interested in the why there's a gap between the perception and the data. You, you sort of referenced it in your first answer. Looking at the data, homicides are up. Um, there's, there's been, unfortunately, 12 homicides in the city this past year, up from six in the five-year average. All other violent crimes are down, and some of them down 44%. What do you make of the gap between that perception yeah. and the data that we're looking at. So we know that crime ticks up in the summer. And at the beginning of this summer, there was a major shootout on Sales Street. There were something like 40 bullet casings on the ground. The proliferation of illegal guns nationwide is a problem, and it's being felt here in Providence. I think people are scared by the shootings. It seems like everyone has a gun. That's hyperbole, but it feels that way. Mm. Uh, and then throughout the summer, there's just been one violent crime after another, culminating in the last week or two with uh, an innocent bystander, as best as we know, on Olney Street getting murdered in the middle of the night. And then this really jarring video and incident out of uh, the ATV problem that happened on Orms and Smith Street a couple days ago. And so That's these, where a woman was taken that's out right. of her so car. That's right. So we've been dealing with this ATV problem for a while. They've been terrorizing the neighborhood. It's the top quality of life concern that I hear when I'm talking to people, and now it has turned violent. And so I think these are crimes that residents and visitors alike identify with and say, oh my God, that could be me. That could have been one of my kids. This isn't just gang-on-gang -gang violence. There's innocent bystanders getting hurt. And I think that's what's causing this feeling of a lack of safety to bubble up to what now feels like a full-on boil. You're a Democrat, and there is still a debate roiling your party among folks, I'd say more on the left side of the party, who are still in the wake of the George Floyd protests talking about reducing police funding, um, already reacting to this week's discussion and saying, no, our whole point was not more cops when there's a problem with violence. But then, of course, you're now hearing people saying, we want more police on the streets. I mean, how do you, how do you square that based on what we learned in the last year as someone thinking about being the mayor of the capital city with such divergent perspectives yeah. on this problem? You know, I, I think I'm grateful to live in Providence and hope to serve as mayor of Providence because I think as a community we get that creating a safe city it involves more than just police. 
but for me it includes police. So we do need to be addressing the root causes of many of these crimes, which are often poverty and desperation or feeling a lack of hopelessness. Uh, and that means better education systems, recreational opportunities for young people, summer jobs for young people. And we're doing those things. We need to keep doing those things. We need to also explore things like diversionary tactics. We know as a community, I believe, that not every 911 call needs to have an officer with a gun respond to. And so we're talking about sending social workers or mental health counselors, addiction specialists to some calls, which will free up police officers to go deal with violent crime and gun crimes. But we need to do that in addition to having a properly staffed police department so that we can really lean into community policing. Community policing is a, is a broad term, but it includes building relationships with the community by having police officers walking the beat, riding their bicycles, building relationships, being hired from the community, reflecting the diversity of the community. And so I support, I'm excited that there's a class graduating now, which is the most diverse class in the city's history, a class of police officers. I support one following right after. We've done a good job. To what, to what number? We're at 415 sworn personnel right now. Some You talk to some in law enforcement in the city, and they're like, we should be at 500. Yeah. Is that where we should be? I don't know what the magic number is, but I know that, as you rightly point out, it used to be 500. We're down in the low 400s when you take out the people who are serving our country in the military or otherwise on leave right now. It's in the 400 and maybe just under. There's over 100 officers who are retirement eligible today. And so we definitely need a class after this class. And hopefully as mayor, I'll be able to work with department leadership, union leadership, and the budget to find out where that sweet spot is. It's more than we have today, and, and we need to continue that recruitment. Because every time we recruit a new class, we're recruiting diverse officers, officers from the community. They're receiving the latest, greatest training. This is also an opportunity every time we bring in a new class. But, uh, there's obviously uh, politics involved, I would say, in the um, squabbling between Mayor Lorza and Governor McKee over um, police. But, but we had this week... Uh, the governor again say, you know, that the mayor should be more welcoming toward the state police coming in to help the Providence police with the, with the violent problem here. And the mayor, I would say toward the end of the week, it sounds like he was sounding more and more supportive of that. It's still a little unclear exactly what that looks like. What do you think of that? Do you think there is a role for the state police uh, to supplement the Providence police to deal with the violence this summer? Yes, and a couple things. One, given what we were just talking about, about this feeling of a lack of safety, if additional resources are being offered, we should just say yes. We should take those resources. I think that will instill a sense of confidence that we're moving in the right direction. You don't think that undermines the Providence Police or so becomes think, scary on the streets to people? Uh, I don't think that it undermines the Providence Police if we do it right, which is there are certain issues where the state police are very well positioned to do a very effective job. I think that starts with the ATV problem. We know that many of these riders are not from Providence. They come to Providence. They leave Providence. They're crossing city and town lines. The state police are the perfect agency to be able to deal with this. They're trained in vehicular crimes. They have the jurisdiction to travel statewide. And Providence police are trained in urban violent crime. They're the best suited to deal with the regular recurring crimes in our city, which the state police are frankly not the best suited for. So I think that there is a role for each but I think we should also be absolutely accepting the extra help that's been offered. You know, uh, particularly with the ATV issue, I talk to a lot of police officers, particularly in the, in the Providence Department, and they, I, I can tell you, Brett, they just do not feel confident in doing their job right now because they feel like they're so under the microscope, right. uh, particularly with body-worn cameras on and all that. And they say that, look, that has led to fewer arrests 
are you hearing that and do you understand that and, and the reticence that maybe some police officers have in Providence? I have heard that and in my uh, press conference earlier this week I talked about this trust deficit. I think there's a trust deficit between the police and the community but there's also a trust deficit between the police and the administration. And what we need to do is close that deficit on both ends, which means the police need to do a better job. I think they try hard, but they need to try harder to go to more community meetings, to make themselves more available, to listen more to the concerns of those who feel unsafe because of the police. Would that mean a change of leadership in the Smiley administration at the top of the police department? I'm not making any personnel uh, conversations during my candidacy, but I think the police ha just have to step it up, even if they feel like they're doing a good job. It's clear that some members of the community don't feel safe with the police, but there is that other side of the equation, which is they also don't feel that they have the trust and confidence from the administration, from City Hall, and, and, it ha and I believe it is holding them back from doing what they feel like they can do safely to crack down on this problem. Mayor Lorz, I'd say, got, has gotten a bit of a black eye, at least in some quarters this week, because he's been out of state on vacation uh, as this, these incidents have happened and as the discussions have bubbled up. Uh, if you were mayor, would you have come back? If I were mayor, I would have come back. Why? Because... Because his people will say, what, what's, what, he's not going to be the one taking the ATVs off the street. It doesn't make a difference. We have an expectation of our mayor, and I fully expect to embrace that expectation of the community that they are available um, and when there's a crisis. And right now, there's a crisis. Um, I, I don't fault him for being away. Uh, you can't control timing on these things. But my understanding is he's not too far away. I would have come back um, to, to answer questions, to make myself available, to hold myself to account. Um, to try to articulate, and this is, I think, the concern. We, this is not going to turn around overnight, but people need to feel confident that we're on it, that there's a plan, and that it's going to get better. And in the absence of communication, that concern, that fear just grows and festers. And, and, and it's a responsibility of all public leaders to, to try to do their best to articulate that vision so that we all as a community can come together and say, this is going to get better. I get it. There's a plan. I understand it. Let's keep moving. I want to shift gears a little bit here. Uh, the vaccination rate in Providence is 52% fully vaccinated. What would you do differently as mayor? Well, I would start by uh, requiring it of public employees. Uh, I think that vaccine requirements are sensible. Uh, if it's determined to be something that needs to be bargained with the unions, I'll, of course, negotiate over it. But uh, but I think we should be uh, vaccinating any of our employees. I'd like to see all of our major employers start to go down that path, just like the federal government has explored, other municipalities. Uh, we inter the city government interacts with the public regularly. I think that's a good both actual real practical first step to get more people vaccinated, but it's also a, a show of leadership. Um, and then continue to work with community partners. The hesitancy around vaccines in Providence is largely communities of color. It's not so much kind of right-wing skeptics, but people who uh, maybe don't have as much information, haven't been able to answer, have their questions answered. And this really kind of door-to-door, hand-to-hand vaccine efforts, there was a highly successful vaccine drive. Uh, earlier this week with the governor in Providence, there was a line. It was so heartening to me to see an actual line of people waiting to get their vaccine. We haven't seen that since the early days. Let me ask you about the Superman building. Mm -hmm. um, so it came up this week after they almost went to a tax sale. That turned out, sounds like it was a snafu with, with the payment, but it, it, re, it re-upped the question of the Superman building. We're getting toward on a decade of that building sitting empty yeah. since Bank of America left. 
everyone knows it's it's going to be highly expensive to retrofit it. Um, and the governor said, you know, a retrofit would be the best option, but we have to think about knocking it down if if that's not going to be there. Painful as it is for many people to hear the idea of knocking it down, do, is that on the table? Would it be? How long would you be okay with seeing that just sit there for eight years if you were mayor for two terms? Uh, teardown is not an acceptable option to me. Uh, and I think it's iconic. I think it is a historic building that's worth saving, uh, and it would be a top priority for me. I think we need to let the market drive what this building could be. There was a big push for a long time to make sure that it was a commercial tenant with jobs. I, I'm confident that it, had we allowed it to go residential, it might have happened already. Uh, and uh, That was a big discussion when you were in the Raimondo administration. I remember, right yeah. And, and I also think that the current building owner is not part of the solution. And so uh, the city needs to get tougher with him. I think eminent domain should be on the table. And, uh, and, and we need to throw uh, every available resource in terms of the city's economic development, direct, uh, economic development department, which I have no idea what they're doing, uh, to help solve this problem. You're running for mayor of Providence, um, and some people might uh, you know, look at your candidacy and ask the question, is an affluent white man from the east side the right person for the job in a city that is predominantly black and brown? What do you say to that? What I say is that residents of Providence should be asking who can deliver on the promises that are going to get made over the next campaign season. There will be a lot of politicians running. They're going to make a lot of promises. And the question for every community, communities of color, every neighborhood in this city, is who can I trust that it's not just one more hollow promise? And I look at my track record of public service, my experience, which is unrivaled to the other people seeking this office, as the city's first chief operating officer who wrote the 10-year financial plan, as the governor's chief of staff, the state's director of administration. I'm uniquely suited to get the job done in Providence. This is a management and an operations job running a large organization with thousands of employees and hundreds of millions of dollar budget. And I believe that I will be able to articulate the best case that, that I will be able to actually deliver real change and progress for every community in this city better and different than my opponents. Well, you were Governor Raimondo's chief of staff when the state took over the Providence schools, and that has seemed rather adrift, I would say, by this time this summer. Uh, was that a mistake as someone who was in the conversations about why to do that? I don't believe it was. We had nearly 30 years of incremental, halting, frankly, insignificant. Uh, it, it, not enough progress in the Providence Public Schools. We've now let down a couple generations of students. We needed to do something dramatic. And the changes that the city was able to force through in the, in the district were just not enough. And so doing something more dramatic to change student outcomes was the right thing to do for students and families. Um, you're right, it does seem adrift right now, uh, and it's disappointing to me. Uh, but. I don't know how you could look a Providence family in the face and say, we're just going to keep doing what we've been doing. How much is that, and I don't have to make excuses, but do you, was, was the focus because of COVID, was that expected to be a major 2020 project of the Raimondo administration and then the, the time wasn't there to focus on it? Listen, there were a series of circumstances that I think caused the turnaround to lose momentum. Uh, obviously, the school year that just finished was supposed to be year one of the turnaround plan. It was all just trying to keep kids safe and figure out distance learning and all of that. We lost the superintendent. Uh, we changed governors. 
All of these things caused the city and state to lose momentum on the turnaround effort, and I hope that we get back on track. There has been an articulated turnaround plan. I'd like to see that implemented. As mayor, I intend to hold right accountable to implementing the plan that's been promised and delivering the changes that have been promised. Uh, but yeah, there were some, some things that caused them to lose momentum, and they need to get back on track. Brett, we have to go to a, a break here, so a minute or less on this one. Uh, mayor Jorge Alorza has um, floated the idea of putting the pension debt out to bond. This hasn't gotten a lot of great traction in the General Assembly, but he says it's an idea that isn't dead yet. Do you support that idea or oppose it? So the pension obligation bond is a funding strategy, and it's a somewhat risky funding strategy. I don't know that it does anything to make it uh, easier to commit to us keeping this obligation. So what I intend to do as mayor is work with neighboring communities. There are other pension systems in just as bad a shape. The dollar figures are smaller because they're smaller systems. Right. But I want to work with a coalition of distressed communities to bring to the state a statewide solution. I think we should get out of the pension business. We should get into MERS. There's been some really That's smart... the state system, right? Yeah, exactly. Thank you. And there's been some really smart people talking about how we can save administrative costs. We're all paying for the same advice, but to different people. But wouldn't you have to bring the debt down to get into MERS? I don't know that the state would let you in unless... That's where we have to go to the state, collaboratively work with them to let them let us have them let us buy in over time. They could they could create a special circumstance to give us kind of an on ramp to get there. We could get in today if we had the money, but we don't. Right. So we're going to have to have an on ramp. But I think we need a more comprehensive solution, and I would I intend to work with neighboring mayors to get that done. All right, Brett Smiley, candidate for mayor Providence. Thanks so much for joining us on the program. When we come back. Target 12 investigator Eli Sherman and his charts bring you up to speed on where things stand with COVID. Stay with us. You're watching Newsmakers. Welcome back to Newsmakers. I'm Tim White alongside 12 News Politics Editor Ted Nisi. And to my left, Target 12 investigator Eli Sherman. Eli, we once again turn to you. Uh, to put where we are with COVID into context in the region. You had a story this week comparing where we are now to where we were 365 days ago. Let's bring up uh, the first of uh, three charts that you used in that article. And it's, it is a little disheartening as we push in to that nexus, if you will, between 2021, which is the yellow line, to 2020, that is the blue line. This is the seven-day average of cases. And you're looking at that, wait a minute, we have more cases now than we did a year ago? Yeah, that's exactly right. So we're looking at a seven-day average. It looks at how many cases happened over the past uh, week. And, it, you know, I think that a lot of people right now are kind of disheartened by that, that right now uh, vaccines are widely available in Rhode Island. And there was some expectation that after that happened that infections would come down and they'd sort of stay down and mm -hmm. while the, the vaccination rate rose. What we're seeing here is that the Delta variant, which of course is a very contagious uh, version of the original virus, is kicking up cases in a very big way across the country, but also here in Rhode Island. And so that's what you're seeing right there is just this surge of new infections uh, that frankly, is, is somewhat disheartening. And on the Delta variant, our colleague Kim Kalunian uh, interviewed Dr. James McDonald from the Rhode Island Department of Health on uh, 12 News at 4 this week, and he had a prediction on when we may peak again here in Rhode Island. Take a listen. I think it's realistic that we could see the peak of Delta COVID by Labor Day, but that's more why I get, get, get the vaccine for you today, because I don't want you in the hospital. 
And I think one of the things other parts of the country are going to see, it's going to go longer than it needs to. You know, in some ways, this whole part of the pandemic has been optional for the United States. You know, I, I wish we had just been done with it. This whole part's been optional. We didn't need Eli, his big point there is, okay, first of all, the, the headline, um, Labor Day peak is what he's looking at. Um, but the whole outbreak was optional is what he said. What, what does he just, what does he mean by that? Yeah, well, look, there are 200,000 about uh, Rhode Islanders who currently are eligible but unvaccinated. So that means that there are 200,000 people in this state right now who have the ability to get a vaccine but have, for whatever reason, chosen against doing so. There is a group, you know, 0 to 12 who are ineligible that's excluded from the 200,000. His point being is, look, we have this, uh, you know, we have this vaccine out there that is highly effective in preventing you from becoming infected or becoming severely ill after contracting the virus. If you get it, we may not have to see this kick up of new cases, new infections like we're seeing right now. And, you know, I should note that while he says that Labor Day is when uh, the Delta variant peak may, you know, start coming back down. uh, A lot of the nationwide projections are much later out than that. Um, So, you know, he, his point being is that because Rhode Island is relatively, uh, has a relatively higher vaccination rate than a lot of other states, our peak may be earlier, which is one bonus, but we'll see you know, in the next month how that trends out. Now, it is important, though, we, we should point out that we saw that chart where the cases are a bit higher than last summer, but we are still far below on both hospitalizations and deaths. Ted? We have a chart for that. Well, let's, let's see that. <laughs> Eli put that chart together, too. Here is uh, the hospitalizations that Ted is referring to. And in a little bit, you'll see the deaths. To Ted's point, Eli, uh, the yellow line, you know, this is the good news of your, of your article from this week, right? Yeah, exactly. So, again, the blue line is last year in 2020. And you see on the far left-hand side there, there's this big peak. And that was headed into the summer. Uh, you know, you remember cases started popping up locally last March. They were followed by this big spike of hospitalizations. We haven't seen that yet um, this time around. And a lot of health experts, especially nationally, are pointing to the lower rate of hospitalizations as evidence that the vaccines are working as intended, keeping people out of the hospital um, and also away from the worst outcome being death, of course. And which we're looking at here. And you can see again, last summer, even at a time where cases were lower, uh, deaths were higher. Exactly right. And um, so this is the silver lining, if you will, of, mm. of the latest rise of infections. Um, I, I would caution that a little bit because as we've seen multiple times now throughout this pandemic, when infections rise, there usually is a corresponding increase of hospitalizations and deaths. Health experts I talk to are hopeful that those will be lower this time around because of the prevalence of the vaccine. And also, you know, a lot of cases are getting kicked up among younger people right now because vaccination rates are lower among teens and young adults than they are older adults. And younger people who contract the virus typically are better off with health outcomes. Yeah, you and I were looking at the uh, breakdowns by age earlier in the week in the vaccination data for Rhode Island. It is striking. I believe it was over 90% of Rhode Islanders in their 70s 70s, have gotten the vaccine, understandably, since they were at such risk as we saw last year. It's still less than half of people, I believe, in their 20s and and the teenagers who are eligible um, being fully vaccinated right now. So 
uh, th there's a lot of risk out there among the younger population, particularly as you see some doctors saying uh, that the Delta variant can make younger people sicker than the first wave. I do want to shift gears real quick because we've got about two minutes left here. And uh, I want to talk about a story you had, Ted, today. I would say a disturbing report from you this week that carpetbaggers are invading <laughs> Rhode Island. Yes. So, um, you know, and I think I, I heard from a person I know who lives in Barrington who was not surprised by this story because he says he's seeing so many New York and Connecticut plates it's true. Um, in the town. Uh, and yet, yeah, the realtors put out their data for the second quarter. The number of out-of-state residents buying homes in the state was up 69 percent mm. in the spring of 2021 versus the spring of 2020. Uh, you're seeing especially Massachusetts, Connecticut, New York, and all the realtors you talk to say, you know, people have re, uh, are rethinking what they want from a home because of the pandemic. They want living space. They want a home office. Maybe uh, more affluent workers can work from home somewhat permanently. Uh, and then also they're seeing a deal in Rhode Island because you know, as much as prices have soared in Rhode Island, and we have, I think the median price is nearly $350,000 now wow. for a single family home, it's still a bargain compared to Massachusetts and, and Connecticut as well. So if you sell a house in Greater Boston, uh, if you get enough equity out of that, you can come down to Rhode Island with that money and still find a pretty nice house, even though the prices here are elevated too. So as we've talked about a million times now on this show, to the extent that Rhode Island is still not building many more houses, it is hard to see what is going to forestall uh, you know, a continued rise in prices and this bidding war, uh, at least until interest rates go up, but there's another recession. Yeah, housing stock is such a problem. As you said, we've done whole shows on it here on Newsmakers. And, and you got to think that the, the out-of-staters coming in, based on your report, I mean, that is an element to driving up the value of homes. And there's a bad side to that, too. It's fun to look at Zillow and, and fun to look at, at Realtor.com and go, oh, my value went up. But, you know, property values, uh, property taxes, I should say, you know, that that could be impacted yeah, as well. particularly for people on fixed incomes who don't necessarily have an income that's rising in, in league with the property tax bills. And also, you know, I was talking to a realtor this week who said for kind of, I would say, incumbent Rhode Islanders who already live here and are looking for a bigger <laughs> house or, or to move towns, maybe for a school system or something, you know, they're getting outbid not only with above asking price bids, they are all cash. You know, someone coming from Connecticut saying, hey, I'll give you $600,000 in cash. We don't have to talk to a bank. It's going to be hard to fight with that with even a traditional a person with good credit. So um, it's a really we're, we have both just a boom in the market, I think, as the economy recovers, combined with some legitimate longer term shifts. I think we're seeing in, in where people want to live. All right. We got to go. But uh, we talked about COVID in Rhode Island. Make sure you check out Eli's story in WPRI.com. For Eli Sherman and Ted Nisi, I'm Tim White. We'll see you next week on Newsmakers.